Good morning, Year 11. So today I'm going to do a podcast for you on an inspector calls. And the idea of doing a podcast rather than a Loom lesson is that you can listen to this while you're walking to your friends, getting the bus to school, um, or even just over the Christmas period if, you know, you're a little bit bored. So in terms of mock feedback that I gave to my year 11 class last year, I told them that they were significantly lacking with um, frequent use of quotations within their answer and therefore that was really limiting their ability to identify language and structural devices used by Priestley. Remember, think slacked structure, language, audience, context and themes. And if you plan slacked in your plan for your answer you're guaranteed that way to meet the assessment objectives so just to recap assessment objective one is where you're almost sort of making a point and backing it up with evidence and if you're struggling to remember quotations because remember you're not given an extract for this particular question um, you know you can make textual references so in act one such and such happens um, or you can paraphrase quotes as well if you're not 100% certain of the words in the correct order just give it a go and you will be given credit for that. Assessment objective two is your ability to analyse language and structure for effect. And in terms of effects, you could be thinking about um, how that kind of conveys Priestley's message, the effect on the audience at the time or yourself as an audience. And again, you could start to branch off into things like genre, tone and be making those contextual links to meet assessment objective three. So that's where you say what was going on in 1912 to 1946. Um, so obviously 1912 is the Edwardian era. A week before the Titanic sets sail is when the play is set. However, this is performed and written in 1946 for an audience that have just been through two world wars and are still, you know, the feelings of, of war are pretty raw still. Um, so Priestley is writing this to, to, to shock people, to educate them and, of course, um, to encourage change to a more um, socialist society overall. Um, remember that it's not the Victorian era, it's not a novel and it's not a reader. You need to be saying 1912 or Edwardian era, you need to be referring to it as a play and you need to be stating that it's an audience rather than a reader. Okay, just thinking about some contextual stuff then. So Priestley uses the inspector as a vehicle for his socialist views and to educate the audience on the class system and inequality in society during 1912 and around that kind of period in history. And Priestley uses the inspector, who is this imaginary character, that all the characters are fictional, they're a device in their, in the, you know, themselves that you can refer to. And he, he juxtaposes the inspector with um, the views of Mr. Burling, who is a capitalist. So one way that you could remember those words, socialist, think sociable, friends, okay, looking after people. Capitalist, you could be thinking capital, there's only one in a country, or sometimes people refer to money as capital. So therefore, capitalist views, it's all about money making and looking after number one. So... This is often done with the use of dramatic irony in Act 1 through Mr Burling's speeches um, to ridicule him so that we don't mm -hmm. trust him and then naturally we kind of um, gravitate towards the inspector's views and of course therefore Priestley's views. And when the play ends on that kind of cliffhanger ending, we know that the likes of Eric and Sheila are likely to mm -hmm. represent the inspector's opinions and viewpoints um, as we sort of end Act 3, and they act as what we could call a proxy or a, a surrogate. They take that message forward um, and, and go on to you know, spread that in society and, and continue to prompt change. 
So like I've said already, the, the play is set in 1912 um, and first performed in 1946 so that by this point the audience have the experience, uh, they've witnessed the topics that are covered in Mr Burling's speeches and of course that makes us kind of question the characters at the time and, and provoke further change. Um, if you wanted to link this to genre, you could comment on how it's a morality play, so it's making us question our morals or the characters' morals and values, and of course a, a whodunit play. Um, we're, we're constantly, as as the play develops, trying to pinpoint the blame or get characters to take responsibility for the demise of Eva Smith and you know the actions um, taken place and, and how that's had an effect on this character and led to her drinking the disinfectant and committing suicide. So just as a little bit of an example then of how to be meeting assessment objective two in terms of language analysis, uh, an example quotation then, one that a lot of you use because it's quite memorable, is 46,800 tonnes, New York in five days and every luxury and unsinkable, absolutely unsinkable. So within this quotation then, what I wanted to show you was that you don't always necessarily have to pick out language techniques. If you're one of those people who struggles to identify them or can't remember them, I mean, firstly, you know, be, be making the effort to create cue cards and be learning them, you know, if you've got your glossary list. But at the same time, if, if you absolutely can't remember, then we need to think of a plan B. So the obvious is the repetition there of unsinkable, unsinkable, isn't it? And this is used to ridicule the character because he, he appears absolutely certain in his viewpoint that the Titanic can't sink um, but obviously a week after the speech it does and that use of the adverb there defines his arrogance and, and so we you know we lack trust in this character as a result. So that would be the use of the technique. The second thing that you could look for is to identify a word class so in this case we could look at the use of the proper noun of New York which could link to another sort of power country, um, Mr Burling being impressed by travel um, the business and trade links there, that's what he is impressed by as a businessman. And again, we could be looking at business and exploitation um, overseas. So the, the idea of Wall Street, and this could sort of foreshadow a change in that exploitation in the workplace because it's foreshadowing the Wall Street crash. If you um, don't feel like you can even remember sort of word classes, one of the things that you could do is comment on which words are interesting to you and what they show, or certain patterns within language or links in terms of a theme within language. So by the word, the phrase every luxury, we can kind of depict from this that, you know, he's very, very focused on material kind of lavish lifestyle. And this is something that the middle and upper classes would have very much accessed and become accustomed to, unlike the, the lower classes, the working classes like Eva Smith. Perhaps it's that you pick out that numerical language of the 46,800 tonnes and that's of interest to you. And of course, you know, Mr Burling is very much obsessed with money and business. He brags, he's impressed by quoting these kind of stats and facts and about this biggest ship that's built. And that kind of is reflected with within him repeating that numerical information. Now, if you wanted to look at something on the whole, pretty much everything creates imagery, okay? Um, you know, you have a noun and if I said to you the word table, you can picture a table in your head. If I said a certain adjective, such as yellow, then I'm sure you'd be able to think of that colour. It sticks in your head. So everything pretty much creates imagery. That's a fallback plan. 
Another thing that you can do with something like this is talk about it being a bit of an extended metaphor. So in this case, you've got the upper class at the top of the ship, the lower class is at the bottom of the ship, not enough lifeboats filled or, or packed on board because they were so arrogant that this wouldn't sink. And so as a result of this, the less fortunate people were more likely to die. They're stuck at the bottom of the ship when it sinks. So overall, it's metaphorical of the arrogance in society. So Priestley was... Um, sort of in, involved in the wars as um, a soldier. He joined the infantry at the age of 20 in 1914 and he left the army in 1919 after being on the front line in France. Um, narrowly escaped a number of kind of attacks. Uh, he was a victim of a, a gas attack as well. So his references to war, um, you know, it's, he's clearly writing because he's experienced with war and the horrors of war and he... Um, he wants people to understand, I guess, what it was like. And perhaps when we look at the character Eric, we can see a really troubled young man and, and he is potentially reflecting the mindsets of, of many young men who came back from war. And we can look at that a little bit later on in the podcast. Okay, another thing that your teachers may have linked to is the seven deadly sins. And you can weave this kind of theory into the morality play genre idea, something that was really popular kind of at medieval times, to be honest. But um, it's talking about the sort of damnation of characters. They're doomed. They're probably going to hell. Um, however, this was still a popular genre around the 1910 kind of era. And that's perhaps why Priestley has created these characters that we can link to the seven deadly sins. So you've got Eric, who drinks too much. He's associated with gluttony. He steals money rather than earning it, so we could associate him with laziness, which is sloth. We have got Mrs. Burling, who believes that you know she can't be backed down in any way to admit responsibility or, or blame in any way, and so she's associated with pride being socially superior. We have got Sheila, who is quick to lash out in mill wards, and she's envious um, of Eva Smith. And of course, she represents wrath because she lashes out quickly. We've got Gerald, who represents lust, because not only has he got a lovely fiance, but he is quickly drawn to this pretty young girl, Eva Smith. And so he's got kind of a bit of a mistress on the side as well. So associated with lust. Avarice means love of money. And that's obviously Mr. Burling. He's associated with business and he's impressed, isn't he, by the knighthood or the crofts and where he can be in society. And he's scared of a public scandal. So that's something potentially that you could link in as well. Another thing you could do when linking to audiences and, and their responses you could talk about an active or a passive audience so an active audience is likely to question um, lots of features in the play such as is it one photo that's used or is it several photos is it one girl therefore or is it several girls um, you know maybe thinking about who the inspector really could be is it literally a police inspector and that's what a passive audience may think however an active audience may challenge who the character is and, and what they represent so think about if you're active and you you know challenge and ask questions or if you're passive and you just sit back and kind of enjoy the play and it's a form of escapism and you directly absorb kind of the messages Priestley gives to you if you're aiming for those higher grades some of your teachers may have pushed you on to embed literary theories that's absolutely fine um, although it's not featured on the mark scheme, it, it does look quite impressive to do. So perhaps you could link to Freud's wish fulfillment theory, this idea that no matter how much money you've got, you still want more like the Burling family, the rich are getting richer. So lower costs and higher prices is a quotation that could potentially represent that. 
perhaps you could look at feminist theory of Priestley being a feminist and he's perhaps inspired by women's role during the the war and you know he makes Sheila a really perceptive and strong character she is the first to change he makes Eva Smith the victim deliberately um, and overall he highlights how women are abused and objectified and unequal in this patriarchal society remember patriarchal society meaning meaning male-dominated society perhaps you could link to the work of Karl Marx on socialism and reflecting that Priestley is a is a socialist and some of you may have studied Dunn's theory of time as well so that's you know some of the things that you could potentially link to so I want to start off then by analysing some of the characters in a little bit more depth, some of the things that you could look at, because it's really important that the meeting assessment objective one, you've got a variety of points, a variety of ideas, and it's really important that you do a plan to stop yourself from repeating yourself frequently. So it's likely you're going to get a character question or a thematic question, a question based on a theme. So we'll start off with character and then we'll explore some of the themes that you could look at. So the inspector then, firstly, he could represent a godlike figure. And this is signified by his power and, and dominance. And that's shown within the stage directions. He's described to be cutting in massively and he undermines Mr. Burling in his own house. He has full kind of control of all of those characters as he enters the room. And remember, he, he gives them sort of little information. He simply asks some basic questions and gives pretty simple answers, but he has the power to make them confess. Now, when he enters the room, the lighting goes from pink and intimate, which symbolises the engagement, the romance of Sheila and Gerald, and of course the rose-tinted glasses idea of um, this, that, you know, the family are not seeing things accurately enough. They have this kind of false um, ideology that they're living in, which is about to get smashed apart by war. And when the inspector enters, the, the lighting becomes brighter and harder. And that could symbolise kind of a police interrogation room of that bright white light or a heavenly light if it was to be this kind of link to God. And it's meant to be quite uncomfortable, you know, under the spotlight, really white and intense light. They can't escape it. It could also represent then um, the idea of our conscience and acting as sort of something that affects our moral compass. And he's making us kind of reflect on our thoughts and for the characters it's, it's likely to be a point of reflection or making them feel guilt. His name, Inspector Ghoul, sounds obviously like ghost as well, it's spelt differently in this case but that adds a supernatural kind of spooky element and of course that keeps the audience hooked doesn't it, it's enigmatic, it's mysterious, um, it makes the character um, somebody to almost fear. He could be a real police inspector okay that could be just the literal meaning of, of who he is he's come to investigate he could be a catalyst for confessions he speeds up these confessions from the Burling family and of course to highlight their their blame and responsibility he could represent Priestley's viewpoints and his voice he could be a father figure to the likes of Eric and Sheila he sets an example um, as described by making an impression on them and therefore that's encouraging sort of hope within the younger generation that they will take forward Priestley's views and change society. He could reflect patriarchy. He's male, he's dominant, you know, he's leading the room in that respect, isn't he? But in a more positive light, as opposed to the way Mr. Burling and Gerald misuse their power frequently. He could be a voice for socialism in the strengthening Labour Party. 
And therefore, you know, we could argue that this is reflected within little subtle metaphors that I use, such as Mr. Burling's reference to golf. And, you know, the, the inspector rejects this idea because he's a team player. He says, he, I don't play golf. And of course, one character can always juxtapose another. That means to, to contrast. And in this case, he juxtaposes Mr. Burling. So let's have another look at a little quotation again and, and sort of try and build on this AO2, this language analysis. So the quotation I'm going to look at is, but just remember this, one Eva Smith has gone, but there are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths left with us. And I think anything you can take from the inspector's final speech, you can always quote it in every single exam question, whether it is a contrasting view or a delivery of Priestley's messages. Um, you can always link to it. So that's really key quotations of what to learn. Of course, you've got to learn things that are memorable to you, but these quotations are what I refer to with my class as really rich quotations. They've got lots of stuff to look at. Okay, so just remember this is an imperative. An imperative means a command. And it's to encourage the audience really to reflect. It's kind of giving them the power to um, act upon this, to have an action, isn't it? And it's direct address, of course. So not only could it appeal to a 1946 audience, but a modern day audience too. So that again shows the character's power and authority. We've then got this idea of Eva Smith being used as a bit of a microcosm, a, a one, ex one example of something going on on a much larger scale of women in society in the working class in 1912. And the hyphen, after the word gone, creates kind of a dramatic pause there, which signifies her death, makes us really sort of focus on that. And, and we're haunted throughout, to be honest, because the inspector frequently refers to Girls died at the infirmary, her insides are burnt out, she's laying on a slab, you know, really kind of quite graphic imagery and that's repeated several times. So that adds extra horror and of course you can look at structural features as well if you find it easier to pick out pieces of punctuation rather than just looking at language all the time. Okay, we've then got um, really significant use of connectives that, and it's also the use of repetition as well, because we've got repetition of the connective but, which implies hope and change. There's still time to improve things. And of course, the, the play is designed to educate people on inequality. But we've also got repetition of the connective and. So instead of just putting, um, you know, just millions of Eva Smiths, we've got millions and millions and millions. Okay, so that sort of um, repetition again of, of millions there as well, showing the extent of suffering and the, the large numbers of the working class who are exploited by these industrialists or these capitalists um, really kind of emphasises the quantity of victims there. And the pronoun us that we are left with there then, um, that's again uniting the audience and quite often people do this within speeches, don't they? Um, especially politicians to get people on side. So... He's stressing that everybody is responsible. And again, if you wanted to, you can make kind of little subtle references to other places in the text. So this potentially you could link to like bees in a hive. Um, we are members of one body is another quotation that you could use. So the name Eva Smith is quite significant because we have Eve, which is linking to like the Garden of Eden imagery, religious references. And of course, whenever you link into Christianity, you can be talking about being charitable, which, you know, from studying a Christmas carol. I always think of Eve being like symbolic of being the day before something or before the big event, like Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. And so it's this kind of idea that this is just before huge changes. Eva Smith is one example of a woman who will be exploited, but she 
She's really key at turning things around. Smith is also a very common British surname. So remember, this is appealing to a British audience. It's, it's designed and, and written for a British audience. Another quotation then that we could look at from the inspector's final speech is, if men will not learn that lesson, then they will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. Good night. So, firstly, by using the word men, that highlights the fact it's a patriarchal society and so therefore perhaps holds men responsible for change. We've then got this monosyllabic chant, harsh sounding, quite angry in tone opening of if men will not learn that. So mono meaning one syllable beats. Okay, so that's something else you could look at if you find that an easier technique to spot. We've also got this semantic field of education created with words like lesson and taught. So like he's he's there really as kind of a bit of a professor, isn't he, of socialism almost. He's there to teach people. He's an opinion leader. He's powerful. And so a semantic field is a group of words that connect in theme or meaning. So if you had a semantic field of colour, you could have purple, red, yellow, green. If you had a semantic field of education, you might have, in this case, taught or lesson, whiteboard, book, ruler, you know, a teacher. It could be a number of different things. So if you can make patterns between words and you're quite kind of good at spotting that kind of thing, to comment on a semantic field being used is quite a high level technique. It's more associated with what we do at A level really. So that's something you could also use within your answer. We've then got some interesting nouns. So if you can pick out naming words, nouns, and look at connotations, that's something else you could do. So you can give the denotation, the literal meaning of a word. So fire, you know, hot, flame, dangerous, uh, used to keep you warm maybe. But really, it has connotations of war, hell, danger. And remember, this is really alarming to a, an audience who've just experienced World War II. We've also got the noun blood, and that has connotations of death, suffering, maybe sacrifice, injury. So again, linking to war. Now, the rule of three there, fire and blood and anguish, again, heavy use of that connective to really stress those words. Um, it's, it's really unsettling. It's leaving us thinking about being troubled and disturbing times. And it's, it's left at the end of the rule of three there to express the extent of, of suffering. So this is kind of what we could call um, the peak of tension, the climax in the story just before the inspector's about to leave. And he shows his power there by saying good night and the Burlings cannot respond to that. So just, you know, he's, he's leaving with that authority. Okay, let's have another look then at the character Eva Smith. We've talked about her first name. She then switches it to Daisy Renton. And this is quite significant as well. Remember, you can look at character names. You can also look at stage directions. So the name Daisy that she's selected for herself could be associated with or have connotations to spring, fertility, growth, nature, femininity and beauty. Um, and, you know, she's frequently referred to as a pretty girl. So objectified by men, she's a victim of kind of the treatment of men, whether it be Mr. Burling through to Gerald through to Eric. Um, she's quite an enigmatic character. She We ask lots of questions about her. You know, we don't hear her voice, um, but she is a character that's kind of campaigning for the ideology she she believes in. And that's sort of rights um, at work and equality for women and sort of better pay and working conditions. So we could argue then that we hear her voice a little bit through the diary, um, which provides a little bit of realism, but also by the inspector kind of quoting what she's put in the diary, it brings her voice to life and gives her a bit of a ghostly property as well. She 
chooses the surname Renton, and that's quite significant because Renton obviously contains the first syllable there, rent, reflects the name is borrowed. And she calls herself Mrs. Burling at one stage, this idea of reinventing herself. And Priestley could do that deliberately to draw a kind of parallel there between Mrs. Burling and Eva Smith. You know, anybody could be born into a family um, that's upper class or lower class. It's just a, a, a bit of a lottery in that respect. So... She's desired this fresh life. She's changed her name. And the other thing we can link the word rent to as well is this idea of Gerald renting her as a mistress for a short time. So quite a significant name choice again. So the purpose of the character, um, overall, she is representing the silent majority of vulnerable working class women. She desperately seeks change. She's rebellious and quite spirited. And, and therefore, we can kind of link her with the character Sheila as well as for being pretty as they're described. Um, Priestley draws equality between Eva and Mrs. Burling when she refers to herself as Mrs. Burling. And you could argue that her drinking disinfectant to commit suicide, it could be this idea of her cleansing herself. She feels violated by characters like Eric. And so that could be metaphorical of a bit of a cleansing thing as well. She's pretty outspoken, pretty controversial for a character at this time. Remember, women aren't allowed to own any property. They are owned by marriage. Um, they are believed within the play, aren't they, to sort of go mad about clothes and that really all they do is kind of just stay at home all day, to be honest, unless they are of lower classes and then in which case they may have been forced to go to the palace bar for the likes of prostitution, dangerous factory work, things like that. Okay then, so um, Sheila refers to the likes of Eva Smith or, as, but these girls aren't cheap labour, they're people. And obviously with the, the word people, we often have sort of, you could link it to connotations to sort of humanity and feeling and care and emotion. But by using the word girl, it, I guess it stresses that she's very young and it's a waste of life. Um, but by using the word people, it strips Eva of identity and that she's just one of millions remember. Um, Mrs. Burling refers to her as girls of that class and as if a girl of that sort would ever refuse money. And that's quite ironic because, of course, she's being hypocritical and she's she's judging Eva and stripping her of her individuality. If you wanted to go for those higher grades, then you could potentially link this to this Nazi Germany idea that, you know, one group of people were discriminated against as the result of the views of one dictator, that being Hitler. And in the same respect, Mrs. Burling, as a member of the upper class, is stereotyping um, all of girls of that class as having these same kind of principles. And she talks later on, doesn't she, about having, she was claiming all these airs and scruples or something, she says. We can also sort of talk about the chain of events structure with Eva Smith and, and people quite often tend to lean upon this idea of retelling the plot or going through paragraph by paragraph um, being different characters and how they're responsible. Don't get kind of too um, suckered into doing that because it's not really meeting the assessment objectives and it, it's probably at best going to get you about a low band three kind of response but it's more typical of a band two response so avoid retelling the plot but you know with the chain of events structure as as a feature that you're looking at in terms of methods we can talk about how each character leads to her demise through their actions and the quotation there showing that if each of you helped to kill her something that is a little bit weird but again if you're trying to stretch and, and challenge within your answer go for those higher grades you could sort of link to Freud's psychoanalytical theory and this idea that 
Eric's seeking a mother figure desperately, and so he reaches out to the more mature Eva Smith, who is a bit old for him, of the wrong class and so on, but she's much more level-headed and sensible than he is. He's very irresponsible. And he he rep- he resents his father, doesn't he? He views him almost as a rival. Um, and Eva, on the other hand, reflects kind of strength. She's kind-natured. Um, she's responsible. And I guess that kind of contrasts that of his mother, who's proud and shallow. Um, so that's one thing you could say, that Eva's like a bit of a mother figure to Eric as well, who's desperately seeking some um, parenting of some sort. So looking at Mr. Burling then, um, you've got quite a clear description of this character in the stage directions at the start of Act 1. Um, massively takes over at the start of Act 1, you know, really lengthy speeches, probably boring everybody at the dinner table. Um, but dramatic irony is the technique that's used there to ridicule him and that's where the audience know more than the characters. Um he is a very selfish man, pretty pompous, very arrogant, um, believes you should only look after yourself, and as an afterthought, he says, you know, oh, and your family too, of course. He believes as a businessman that it's his duty to keep labour costs down. Obviously, that's something the inspector challenges. And he spends a lot of time focusing on money, name dropping, whether it be um, Finchley recommending some alcohol to him at the start of Act One, which is kind of how he kickstarts the conversation with Gerald. Um, or whether he's kind of trying to act a bit of a know-it-all, you know, the famous younger generation who know it all and they can't even take a joke. So he creates a massive divide between the older and younger generation as well through his um, through his speaking parts in the play. He opens and closes the play, which provides that circular narrative structure because we start and end in the same place. Another thing that you could talk about, again, when I talk about these extended metaphors, he sits at the head of the table and the younger generation are arguably trapped between him, aren't they? Because you've got Mrs. Burling at one end of the table being the most socially superior character, Mr. Burling at the other end of the table, and of course the younger generation sandwiched between them. And that could be metaphorical of we can't change, we can't move forward unless these younger people um, kind of come forward and try to change things. So let's look at the younger generation then. We've got Sheila, the character who uh, evolves the most within the play. She starts off very immature. She refers to her father as daddy. Um, She's described as a pretty girl. So we we kind of see her on a very superficial level to begin with. She's celebrating her engagement to Gerald, a match that would have suited her father's business and status. And that's kind of what the class system would have required and wanted at the time. She's quite perceptive, quite intelligent, and she changes first, and that could reflect Priestley's feminist views. A quotation that shows that is why, you fool, he knows, of course he knows, you'll see, you'll see. She looks at him almost in triumph. We can also see then that the character's change is demonstrated within quotations like, I'm not a child, don't forget it, and your daughter isn't living on the moon, she's here in Brumley too. Remember, Brumley is this fictional kind of city-like place, probably probably reflecting somewhere like Sheffield, perhaps. And she represents feelings of guilt and remorse. So it frightens me the way you talk, and I suppose we're all nice people now. Element of kind of sarcasm to her as well, isn't there? And we see that when she refers to Gerald as, you know, we didn't think he was staying at Buckingham Palace, and um, when he's talking about the Palace Bar, and also when he um, is referred to as the Fairy Prince, she's mocking him there. So Sheila is a character that the audience begin to warm to, although, of course, it's not kind of what she does at Mill Wards. She's 
kind of quite empowered and were quite inspired by this character by the end of the play. She does kind of reject her upbringing and her class to some extent by using slang like the word squiffy, for example, and that perhaps foreshadows she's going to be quick to change. We also see that she rejects her parents' views metaphorically through the stage directions when she's described as she turns away, as if she's turning her back on them. Eric, too, is somebody who kind of changes, and I guess he is indicated as changing quite quickly as well. It's foreshadowed within Act 1, but perhaps in a little bit more of a cowardly way. He goes out for a walk, he needs a drink as his crutch. Um, he misses kind of the bulk of the inspector's visit as a result because he wants to run away. But perhaps that's to give him some thinking time as well. And like I kind of touched upon earlier, this idea that he represents the psyche and the, the makeup of somebody who's just come back from war, is very troubled, kind of quite um, sort of insular and isolated. He's a bit of an outcast. And again, you can see that in the stage directions, he sat on his own at the table opposite the partnership of Sheila and Gerald. He portrays his socialist views quite early on. Why shouldn't they try for higher wages? He also contributes to sort of that peak intention, then you killed her, damn you, damn you. That quotation reflecting how fragile he is and that he has suffered great distress as a result of his own actions, but also of his mother's actions in particular. He lacks a parental figure and a role model. Role model. He says, you're not the kind of father a chap could go to when he's in trouble. And the word chap is the that sort of use of colloquial language, informal language, slang. Um, it helps us to identify with Eric. In particular, a working class background could identify with him further through use of that language because he appears more down to earth rather than that of his ignorant and proud parents who use silly words like impertinent to describe Eva Smith's behaviour, that she was rude. We feel kind of sorry for Eric in some respects. We can kind of view him as a little bit of a victim, that he hasn't had the upbringing. Um, and that's perhaps why he's indoctrinated or just falls into this kind of um, the, the expected ways that society expects him to behave as part of the a member of kind of your aristocracy or your upper classes. In the stage directions at the start, he is described as half shy, half assertive. And again, that's quite a memorable short quotation that you could use. And this implies then, through the word shy, that he's quite vulnerable and childlike, but assertive suggests he has a violent streak. And it's implied later on, isn't it, when he says, I was in a state where a chap easily turns nasty and I threatened to make a row, that perhaps he's become quite physically violent or forceful with Eva, particularly maybe within their sexual relationship, and that's foreshadowed um, through this sort of quotation of half assertive. The word half as well could symbolise that he doesn't quite fit he's a bit of a misfit he's not a fully rounded person he's half a person maybe because he's not defined by society's expectations of having his own business his own wife and children his own property whatever it may be so he's, he's kind of a restricted and isolated and alienated character for the time Gerald on the other hand in the eyes of Mr Burling is seeing as being kind of the, the son he'd always probably wanted and wished for he is the hero of his own story, this fairy prince ideal, idea which Sheila mocks him with. And it's kind of glorifying his reputation of himself. You know, he was trying to help Eva Smith. He, want, he had good intentions. And therefore, maybe the audience may be less harsh on him because he just tries to get the girl some food and put a roof over her head. However, this obviously turns into him being, well, him having an affair and him lying frequently to Sheila. 
he misuses his power and that makes us be repelled from him as an audience and you can you can talk about audience positioning whether you feel close or distant to characters as a little bit more of an ambitious thing to talk about in terms of audience response so not only does he lie to Sheila about the affair and to Daisy about the fact that he is already engaged he also lies on the phone to the police towards the end of the play to gain further information and says he's concerned that one of his employees has committed suicide he represents landed gentry people who come into money socially superior and his mother and father lord and lady croft again very wealthy privileged members of society he is a character that is kind of sitting on the fence between he agrees with mr burling and thinks he did the right thing where eva smith was concerned but i guess being younger generation as well we link him to the sort of relationship with Sheila and the fact he he kind of comes clean and confesses, doesn't he, eventually. He's defined as being an attractive chap. So again, maybe somebody that we are deceived by due to his physical appearance or that people in society at the time could be deceived by because he dresses well or he looks, he looks nice. Um, so we need to try and judge this character on a deeper level rather than quite superficially. He's very much impressed and celebrates Mr. Burling's knighthood and this is an idea of the rich getting richer and championing each other and and wanting to work together as a team to exploit the lower classes. Mrs. Burling, also an example of landed gentry, then she comes into money, she inherits her wealth, whereas Mr. Burling, the maid money, um, some of you will have seen this within the film Titanic, when they're sat around the table and they use phrases like maid money and landed gentry, new money. And she's kind of stripped of any maternal warmth or loving characteristics and that makes us very distant from her. She's arguably, in my opinion, one of the most repulsive characters because she's so ignorant, so proud and judgmental, misuses her power um, and she's quick to blame other people, in particular her son. Um, She informs um, her daughter that... You know, she needs to realise that men with important work to do sometimes have to spend nearly all their time and energy on their business. So she conforms to being submissive as a female and gives her daughter this same advice, which is disappointing. She sits at the head of the table opposite her husband, reflecting that she's socially superior and she's born into this class. Irony is used to ridicule her, such as she was claiming elaborate fine feelings and scruples. She's the head of the Brumley Women's Charity Organisation where she manipulates others and abuses her power in the same way that Gerald abuses his power. No sisterhood displayed, no compassion. We can't warm to this character in any way. Eric holds her responsible for killing both Eva and his grandchild and horror is created through the verb choice he uses such as killed. My child, your own grandchild, you killed them both. And we've got really heavily disjointed sentence structure there to show how distressed he is. He's absolutely at breaking point. And one of the things we could look at there where Eric is at breaking point is that Priestley is perhaps trying to... um, break down this gender stereotype of men having to be strong and rational um, and support the family um, by Eric being at breaking point and being a fragile character. And he's saying, you know, that's okay, he needs support. So some of the themes that could come up then um, are things that you can link to even if you do get a character question. The obvious one is the juxtaposition of socialism and, and capitalism and the inequality within that class division as a result. 
Um, we've got responsibility and blame. Who is responsible in society after the demise of the character Eva Smith? You've got other divisions such as the older and younger, gen younger generation and um, sort of gender divide as well. So men and women's roles and inequality in society. Victims and vulnerable people. Um, the idea of corruption and deceit or power and authority. You might get something about relationships between characters as well. Or how characters um, are reformed or changed, they evolve. Other things that you could look at then, religious teachings and messages that kind of come through. Um, specific important speeches. Um, how people learn lessons and it's there to, to educate and you could link that to narrative structure. So in terms of how to revise for this play beyond listening to this podcast, you could make yourself some flashcards to learn key quotations. You could um, try to annotate the text if you've got your own copy of it. You could try to do some past papers from the AQA website or design your own questions. And perhaps if you know you find it a little bit overwhelming to do um, a whole question in exam timed conditions, perhaps then you could try to just do a mind map plan and think about assessment objective one, two and three and be thinking about how you could use those, um, a different colour for each of the assessment objectives. Remember, you could always listen to some Mr Brush clips as well. So good luck with your revising. I hope this has been useful. That's not everything you need to know about an inspector calls. It's just an overview to prepare you for your mock exams.